Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm the research director of ECFR. I'm substituting for Mark Leonard, who's on sabbatical as part of my slow rolling coup. And this week's podcast will be about Turkey and the war in Gaza. In recent weeks, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has repeatedly raised eyebrows among his Western allies with his at times quite belligerent proclamations on the war in Gaza. He's likened Israel to war criminals and fascists and labeled Hamas a liberation group. Likewise, the atmosphere in Turkey has been quite heated with attempts to storm an airbase hosting U.S. troops as well as the Israeli consulate in Istanbul. So what we're going to try to do today is talk a little bit about what role uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict and the war in Gaza plays in Turkish domestic and foreign policies. And we are joined by uh, two incredible experts on that, Asla Aydintashbash uh, and Dimitar Bechev. Asla is um, a former and current uh, associate fellow at ECFR and currently a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. And Dimitar Bechev is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and director of the European Policy Institute, a think tank based in Sofia, uh, Bulgaria. Um, so, Asla Dimitar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Good to be here. Asla, maybe you can start by just giving us a bit of context. Clearly, uh, this is an issue which has a lot of emotional resonance in Turkey. What, what should we make of Erdogan's often over-the-top statements? Are these blusters? Are they a sop to popular opinion? Or do they reflect some deeper vision that he has? I think they are reflective of his mood, his uh, emotions, and certainly what he stands for in Turkey. Uh, at the end of the day, Erdogan comes from an Islamist background. In, he's been, his uh, story is uh, the rise of Islamist politics in Turkey, and it becomes particularly important in times like this when there is a conflict between Israel and Palestinians. Turkey has always been sensitive to this issue. It's one of Israel's oldest friends in the neighborhood, but whenever there was a flare-up in the conflict, uh, relations were strained between Turkey and Israel. Even uh, under Ejevich, you know, previous leaders who came from secular background. But with Erdogan, there has been a very clear policy of engagement with Hamas. He's always argued that Hamas is a legitimate Palestinian actor. And what is unique about this moment with Erdogan coming out and saying openly Hamas is not a terrorist organization, it is a liberation group, and uh, calling, you know, and accusing Israel of committing war crimes and so on. What is unique about his mo this moment is Erdogan is not just uh, coming out and saying what is happening to Palestinians, the sort of the enormous, devastating civilian toll in Gaza is unacceptable. He is adding something very controversial to that, which is that Hamas is legitimate. And therefore, in a sense, um, I think in the eyes of many people in Turkey, legitimizing what happened on October 7th. So as such, he's taking a very different line from 
certainly uh, countries in Europe and the transatlantic community, but also many in the global south. I think this is a reflection of his worldview. It's a reflection of his uh, inner world. He's outraged about what is happening in Gaza and the loss of civilian lives. But it's very much in sync with where he wants to take Turkey, uh, some type of a leadership, regional leadership role, uh, a, a new Ottoman uh, dream, in my view, uh, that has largely been his platform over the past uh, decade and a half. There, uh, Dimitar, there seems to be a, a, a certain consistency in what Asla says. I mean, but at the same time, in terms of in terms of Erdogan's worldview and where he wants to take Turkey, at the same time, there's been a long Turkish relationship with Israel, and that Turkey and Israel have been quite useful to each other geopolitically. There's been a lot of ups and downs in it, of course, but just recently, you know, Turkey and Israel together were, for better or for worse, fairly instrumental in helping Azerbaijan in its wars with Armenia. So is there a sort of ideological conflict with Turkey's geopolitical orientation or do they are they able to square that? That's a very good question. I think it's a combination of both. And I definitely agree on the ideology side with Asla. Uh, this leadership in Turkey, the political elite, sees Turkey as part of the uh, Middle East and uh, aspiring leader of, of uh, regions Sunnis. So there's no way Erdogan could stay silent. And we, we remember what happened in 2009, 2010, and it's not a precedented reaction. Uh, suffice to say that, of course, Hamas is part of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, ecosystem, which is ideologically aligned with the AKP. But I also see shades of realpolitik there, and I'll explain why. I mean, first of all, Turkey is very vocal, but there's uh, the realization that Turkey cannot be playing the leading part in the effort to mediate. Uh, indeed, uh, today we heard... Hamas representatives saying that it was Qatar um, leading the way. And of course, the Saudis um, uh, involved as well in mediation uh, along with the Egyptians. And con contrast that with uh, the height of Turkish ambitions when Turkey thought that it could be the sole leader in this part of the world at the height of the Arab Spring. And now, I think uh, in Ankara, they know that it has to be Arab actors leading the way, and Turkey can play a supportive role. Um, and therefore, Qatar, which, of course, is closely aligned with, with Turkey, uh, is uh, on the front seat, and there is a talk of a contact group. Number two observation, uh, who is absent in this multilateral effort? Of course, we don't know the whole story because it's happening behind the scenes. And the Iranians are not there. Uh, they were sidelined in Karabakh. They were one of the losers in, in this uh, fight, but also now, um, despite it, be, it being an open question how much Hamas was involved with Tehran, it's clear that Turkey is aligning with, with Saudi Arabia in isolating Iran in the effort to find a solution over Gaza. So I think that's significant that there is this balancing act. <clears throat> and Saudi and Israel, just to widen a bit the, the, the discussion, um, the October 7th attack has undermined the normalization of, of relations. 
but it has not put it on hold indefinitely. There'll be a moment where uh, the deepening or the rapprochement will resume. So Turkey, I see coming closer to this axis, if you will, of uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, sorry, Saudi Arabia and Israel that is trying to balance Iran uh, in the Middle East. So I'm not quite of... sure what, what you're getting at there, Dimitar. I mean, you, are you saying that it, you don't you don't think that Saudi Arabia is, let's, it's, let's say, very sincere in its support of Hamas or its good words about Hamas, but but you think maybe that Turkey is? No, I think both of them are distanced. Maybe Turkey is close to Hamas, but what I'm getting at is that there's a there is a power politic behind behind it. So who owns the Palestinian issues? Is it Iran or is it the Arabs? And Turkey, Turkey's response is the Arabs. Ten years ago, it would have been Turkey. AKP has to be in the lead. Erdogan has to be in the lead. He's the hero of the Arab street. Now it's much more realistic that there has to be a multilateral effort. And Turkey, along with Saudi Arabia, have to be there. But it won't be Turkey as number one. So, Asla, I mean... It- do you think that Dimitar is right that Turkey has, to to a degree, written itself out, or at least not a, not able to take a leading role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because of this rhetoric? Is that a problem for them? Will they do something about it? Look, I think perhaps for the short run, right now, Turkey's frozen out of the current mediation efforts in the region and the humanitarian aid to an extent because of the language Erdogan has been using on Hamas and Israeli reaction to that. Israelis do not want Turkey or Erdogan anywhere near Gaza for the moment. But that is the short term. I think there's a couple of assumptions about Erdogan and how he looks at the Palestinian issue that we need to put on the table for the purposes of this discussion. Um, one is, you know, here he is thinking that it is his personal calling to not just uh, start the rebuilding of the empire, of the Turkish empire, the cl- close the parenthesis that was the Kemalist Republic, but also do so with some type of a, a Sunni leadership rule and the narrative he's been using is sort of the leader of a league of oppressed of Palestinians of people in uh, you know uh, uh, in other parts of the world Erdogan is always framing his uh, foreign policy adventures in terms of helping downtrodden Sunnis and i think Palestinians are front and center to that self image and the contract he's built with Turkish society and um and I think Erdogan is in this for the long game. Uh, yes, right now, Saudis, Egyptians may may be more central to diplomacy, but I don't think Turkey is feeling that, um, you know, the, the situation will remain like this forever. I think that uh, there is an assumption, and we could debate this, whether Turks are right in thinking this, but there's an assumption that sooner or later, um, you know, people will come to Turkey for post-war governance issues, for humanitarian aid, and for legitimacy, uh, uh, in a sense, as the Sunni, uh, as the sort of the most significant Sunni power uh, in the region. And I think that, um, you know, it may be the case that Erdogan is overplaying his hand, but don't forget that he 
is focused on the long game. It is a personal calling, the Palestinian issue. And um, one other point is that uh, he feels Israel is losing the battle of narratives, not just in the global south, but also in the west. And, uh, you know, uh, demonstrations that are taking place in European countries and the United States are only an indication of that. So if you think of that as part of the Turkish assumption now that the West is in decline, um, then it doesn't look so odd geopolitically. So the question you have asked has been, you know, Erdogan is this, uh, uh, the question you have asked in our previous conversations is Erdogan is this uber pragmatist, the guy who could sort of, you know, be transactional about a lot of issues and really uh, do what he is uh, boasting of, a balancing act when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to Black Sea, when it comes to relations with Russia and the United States, and do so in a way that um, increases Turkish leverage. Why not do the same here in uh, the Middle East? Why not sort of uh, do, do a balancing act that allows Turkey to be more central to diplomacy, because I think he feels the West and Israel will lose out on this in the long run. So he's waiting to pick up the pieces. That's what I think is happening. Dimitar, do you, I mean, do you agree that Erdogan is playing a long game here? And, and more broadly, what do you think that the Turks will do? Uh, what, I mean, they, it, the strange thing about the current Turkish situation, as we've described it, is that Erdogan has been incredibly emotive, but he's left himself, as far as we can tell, at least in the short term, very few avenues to be able to concretely express that emotion. And you would think that that might be a problem. I think he has the long-term vision, but uh, the long game ended in 2013-2015 when Egypt swung back to Saudi Arabia when Muslim brothers got deposed. And then when Iran and Russia intervened in Syria, so there's no path forward to Turkish hegemony in, in the Middle East. And I think he's aware of that. The only way to establish influence or to maintain influence is to act in concert with other powers. So if you look around, there are two blocks in the Middle East. One is around Iran, the axis of resistance. The other one is around Saudi Arabia and Israel. And I don't think Israel is Erdogan's problem geopolitically. So there will be a rapprochement, I think. And Turkey, of course, might come to Gaza, but it has to be in the multilateral context where not just regional powers like Saudis and Egyptians, but also the EU has to play a role. And there should be an arrangement with Israel. I don't think there is a scenario where Turkey owns the issue. Um, but of course, that's that's my hunch. Um, Erdogan, and that's a long-term project as well. I don't know how long Erdogan will be around. I mean, he probably will be there for a month, uh, but I don't think this gets settled anytime soon. But of course, domestically, the rhetoric... The Turkish officials tell us he's immortal, but uh, maybe that might not be But right. uh, the one thing to also add is domestically, uh, Palestinian issues emotive, not just for Erdogan's supporters, many people on the left who are very critical of Erdogan tend to be, um, for historical reasons, very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Indeed, Probably that's one of the few issues that has purchased across the political spectrum in Turkey, with some exceptions. Right. Uh, that, that that sort of brings up the point, Asla. Do you, I mean, do you do you accept that that Turkey, if it gets involved in this, will have to do it 
in a multilateral format? Or do you think that maybe there, we will see some efforts given how emotive this issue is both for Erdogan and for domestic politics generally in Turkey? Maybe we will, will we see any efforts for Turkey to do something somewhat more unilaterally? I uh, No, I agree with Demetar that uh, the path forward in the uh, short term will be uh, multilateral. Uh, it's not so much Erdogan, but people around Erdogan who are running Turkish foreign policy right now understand the limitations. Uh, this doesn't mean his vision is not there, I think. Uh, we are dealing with someone who wears his emotions on his sleeve and you know when he talks about gaza not being any different from adana uh, which is a turkish town that it was taken away uh, they separated us i'm quoting uh, from land that is as much of us as our blood and our love not only physically separated but they try to uproot it from our hearts we'll not forget that you know when he uh, lays out that vision and builds some level of a national consensus uh, in Turkey with polls now indicating that approval, uh, largely approval of Erdogan's position on Palestine. I think that's important analytically for us for, to understand. Uh, Turkey is a heavyweight and even though it's, it's somewhat marginalized now in, in terms of regional diplomacy, um, I think its influence in the region and its ability to use this narrative, uh, to use a very strong anti-Israeli stance, to pressure other leaders in the region is, is important, uh, I think. Um, so, yes, I agree with you. Turkey's options are far more limited than Erdogan realizes. But the, the fact that I agree with Dimitar doesn't mean Erdogan agrees with Dimitar. Allow me to point out... He remains a wild card. Yeah. I mean, he's been, as you may have noticed, using this issue as a, as, as a civilizational rift, argument for civilizational rift, often using... Um, the situation not just to... Uh, underline what he views as Western double standard and hypocrisy in bringing up Ukraine, you're crying for kids in Ukraine, but not, but openly saying lately that this is a, a, a battle between crusade and crescent. Um, I don't know any other Muslim leader that, I mean, maybe Iranians do, but in terms of <laughs> people in, uh, in, in, in this part of the world, in, in transatlantic community, in terms of countries in NATO, I don't know anyone else using this civilizational rift argument. I'm and, still uh, struggling with this contradiction that, uh, that they use these incredibly civilizational arguments and yet the geopolitics mean, and means that they're not really involved in the, in the issue. I'm wondering, Dimitar, from a European perspective, uh, how are European officials looking at this? Is there is there a way that they're thinking about trying to get uh, Turkey to be more constructive, or could they be more constructive? Or is you said that it has to be multilateral and Europe has to be involved? How are they thinking about 
using Turkey for this issue, which is becoming quite a difficult one for Europeans. Well, Europeans, as you said, were busy with themselves coming up with a unified position before getting to Turkey, uh, which they've somehow managed to do now with Ursula von der Leyen touring the region, going to Jordan and and Egypt. Uh, But it's the lowest common denominator type of position, uh, it seems to me. And both Europe and Turkey share is that they would be both playing second fiddle in a possible settlement. And they'll be providing humanitarian assistance, they'll be involved in reconstruction. But it's not that France or Germany, much less, or anybody else, or, or Borel, will be knocking heads together. Um, everyone is looking at Biden first and foremost, and, and those Arab actors, I think. So they'll be coming in the second stage. Um, the issues between Europe and Turkey are elsewhere, so it's a sideshow, at least the way I see it. It might turn into something else uh, down the line, but um, I don't think that Turkey is seen as, as a problem. I think they're, if, if you sit in, in Brussels these days or in Paris, and of course Macron has been very critical of this, but it's, uh, I see convergence and possibly avenues for cooperation. Um, well, uh, Asla, um, President Erdogan was just in... Um, Berlin the other day, had a bit of a wild time with Chancellor Schultz. Do you think that this has any possibility of disrupting um, European-Turkish relations? And and also, as you answered that, I wanted to ask you some one last question, which is, you know, uh, Imitar said that Europe and Turkey will be second fiddle. I guess that makes the United States first fiddle. How do the U? How does the you're you're sitting in Washington right now? So how does the U.S. see the Turkish role in this? Are they is the Kong is are Erdogan's anti-Israel statements um, riling his image in Congress even more? A few things. First, let's not forget that this really works in domestic context in Turkey. Erdogan, who's facing local elections, and Jeremy, you know. <laughs> Uh, as well as I do, that the domestic context really matters in Turkey. He's facing local elections, trying to win back Istanbul. Uh, This works. Secondly, um, yes, Turkey and Europe and Turkey might be playing second fiddle, but the jury is still out in terms of where this is going to go. We're still in the early phases of this issue. Is this... Um, another flare-up that will inevitably result in Israel's uh, total control of Gaza, or are we drifting to a, a different place? Uh, you know, I, I think it is my understanding that Erdogan thinks that the region could be drifting to uh, a new place, and uh, therefore not being wanting to look involved, but not being so central to it right now is is not uh, a huge loss. I, I don't think uh, they are thinking of United States as being in full control of what's happening. I think there's a sense that U.S. is losing the narrative. Um, but this will, whatever, however this works out in the region, and Turks could be wrong, this could end up being another flare-up that uh, people will forget forget about next year, but it will have negative repercussions on uh, Turkish-American relationship. Already, the one idea that was seen as the basis of a reset 
in the very troubled relationship with, between Turkey and the United States. That is getting um, Sweden's uh, accession into NATO and using that as the basis of a rapprochement between Turkey and United States. That's already not working out. Turkey is uh, Turkish Parliament is not is in doesn't seem willing at the moment to uh, ratify uh, Sweden's NATO accession. Uh, Turkey and United States have a very dysfunctional failed marriage, and they're trying to find ways of um, an amicable separation. Not necessarily divorce, divorce, but amicable separation. But even that seems very difficult. Uh, one of the ideas, as I mentioned, was Turkey ratifies uh, Sweden's entry into NATO, in return gets F-16s, and then we can F-16s that it's been wanting from United States, and then we can talk about uh, a reset, visits, conversations, leaders at the leadership level, and so on. But even that seems elusive at the moment. Uh, so I don't think this is good news uh, in terms of Turkish-U.S. relations. Yeah, I guess it turns out if your uh, if your relationship is already bad, a new Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not going to help it. Um, I think we probably have to end uh, the, the main portion of our uh, podcast there. It's a fascinating discussion, um, but I think we've kind of concluded that uh, Turkey is playing the long game, and so we're going to have to see how it all comes out. So I hope you guys can come back and do the podcast again when we when we know. But there is one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf section, um, where we. I'd like you both to tell the listeners what you're either reading or listening to or watching and uh, what, what you would recommend that they do. Um, Asa, um, why don't we start with you? What's on your bookshelf? Well, I just started uh, a book on Odessa by Charles King, The Genius and the Death of In a City of Dreams. I cannot... I love his writing, his uh, previous books, but I have only started reading this. It's uh, so I cannot really comment on it, except to say he's a great public intellectual and a good author. I finished watching Only Murders in the Building, uh, sort of a true crime a story of uh, a bunch of people who are doing a true crime podcast. Really fun, especially if you like. New York City and uh, miss it as I do. And also, you know, just finished a very heavy volume on Oppenheimer, the American Prometheus, by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwood. It's been on my bookshelf for months now, and I kept going back to it and reading a couple of decades of Oppenheimer's life and then. you know, reading something else in between, but it's really um, interesting um, in terms of some of the current debates we are having on arms control issues, China, you know, nuclear arms race, uh, because um, the period after uh, the Manhattan Project is when Oppenheimer is very involved. You're reading quite a lot. Uh, Very impressive. Um, I guess we have to get you more work at UCFR. 
Dimitar, what's on your bookshelf? I'm actually reading a book by a colleague of ours, Andy Wilson. Uh, he wrote uh -huh. a book uh, some years ago called Virtual Politics about how post-Soviet politicians are using fake parties, uh, disinformation, media spin, uh, basically the alternative facts that came to the fore with the Trump administration uh, in the post-Soviet space. And now just uh, um, to advertise, he's got another book in the pipeline uh, where he looks at political technology as a global phenomenon, so stay tuned. And another book I'm sort of getting a flavor of, and it's still in the pipeline, it's going to be published early next year, um, is a Cold War History from the Soviet Perspective by a colleague of ours at SAIS, Sergei Ratchenko. So he is a foremost historian of the Cold War. And you can see some parallels between Russian behavior these days and what he describes uh, in the old days. This, for example, chip on the shoulder that Moscow has as to rival the US, but it's as inferiority complex. So these are the things that uh, keeps me uh, on my re reading. I'm impressed that you're reading books that haven't even come out yet. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, but uh, I've got the, the previews. <laughs> what are you reading, Jeremy? Well, I'll tell you, but just to first to put in a plug related to what uh, Dimitar just said, Andrew Wilson, who is a a fellow at ECFR is also coming out with a paper on post-war Ukraine in a couple of weeks. So everybody should look for that since Dimitar has recommended his work overall. Um, I uh, am coming to the end of my time after about two and a half years in Berlin. I'm going to be going back to Washington in, um, in uh, the new year. And so I'm reading a, a novel called Berlin, which is about... Uh, uh, it's a little bit difficult to describe, but it's a sort of mystery of a person trying to in, trying to integrate a foreigner coming to Berlin and trying to integrate, um, and uh, the the sort of weird mystery that she finds herself in, uh, second guessing her every choice. Um, and so that's a little bit where I've been in Berlin, although it wouldn't make quite as good of a novel. It's by Bea Setin, uh, and the title is Berlin. Um, but, uh, with that, um, that's our podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all, hopefully please give us a good rating and a review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. Uh, a, a slew of five-star reviews would be very helpful to my rolling coup. Um, we will put a link to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Asla, Demitar, and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it is goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sunar, and the editor of this episode is Maria Farrow-Sorantz. Mm -hmm.